Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. This is Bewilderbeasts, an infotainment show dedicated to inspiring curiosity for all ages by investigating the ways animals intersect at humanity. I am not a historian, an ethologist, a researcher, a scientist, a zoologist, a trained audio engineer, or an expert in, well, anything. Y'all, I'm lucky if I can remember to put my clean laundry in the dryer before it gets funky. And while I make every effort to present things as accurately as I can with a fun flair, I'm going to mess up. And that's okay. I hope I've given you a nice place to jump off from on your own adventures into curiosity, or at the very least, I've given you the key to win your next round of trivia. A note on today's episode for parents. This is a time of year where podcasts might be giving a warning about certain topics involving a man in a red suit. Full disclosure, we do discuss the Christmas holiday, and for parents listening with young children who believe in Santa, well, I do too. And let's learn how reindeer can fly. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Welcome to Bewilder Beasts. I'm your host, Melissa McKee McGrath, still recording from the world's tiniest podcast studio outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And today we are going to dive into how animals became associated with the holiday season. Like, why are the reindeer named Donder and Cupid? When did Santa decide to go with reindeer instead of a really nice Mustang? And we're going to figure out why on earth someone's true love gave them all those dang birds. All right, let's go. So I'm trying to get into the festive spirit. Generally, I'm that guy who doesn't do Christmas until after Thanksgiving is put away. I usually am the one swearing under my breath at Christmas songs being played in October. I'm anxious when there are holiday sales before Thanksgiving, all of it. But this year is absolutely different. And I feel less of a Grinch. Here's the thing. If you are finding joy in something, anything, as long as it's not harmful to you or someone else, go for it. See, we ended up putting up our holiday tree two weeks before Thanksgiving. We won't be seeing family, we will not be traveling, but both of those things are big parts of our holiday traditions. But not this year. We decided in order to see them next year, we are putting in the hard work of not traveling. We're going to stay put and listen to science and experts and making sure that we are doing our part to keep our extended families safe. See, my little city outside of Boston, Massachusetts, has rising cases, and for us, we just felt it would be a bad call to go anywhere. But we have a holiday tree, and we have decorations and dry erase markers that we can draw on the windows. Oh, kids, before you just go ahead and do that, ask your parents first. But yes, dry erase markers come off very easily off glass. I even did the unimaginable. Yep, I got the family holiday-themed costume pajamas. Kiddo is a little elf with ears included. Husband and I get to fight over who is Rudolph and who is Grinch. Ooh, hmm. and I kind of feel like I just might have set myself up for some interesting commentary about our relationship on the podcast, but there it is. Fuzzy, warm, union suit style PJs. I'm making us those people all before Thanksgiving, and I am fully okay with it because it brings us joy. So as we go into the holiday season, 
I do want to note that there are more than 14 religious holidays that are observed and recognized between American Thanksgiving Feast and January 1st. And today's episode is a very Merry Christmas special. I grew up celebrating Christmas and watching Snoopy and Elf and all of the fun movies, Christmas Vacation. Many of you might be listening that have other experiences, and I plan on getting to a few in the coming weeks, but this week is all about two songs in particular in modern Western Christmas tradition, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and The Twelve Days of Christmas. There is a lot we can do with the animals in just those two songs, and we will get to it. But first... The downside, kids, to adults is that we, and I am absolutely including myself in here, tend to lose belief in magical things. We get too stuffy, too serious, and that's really too bad. I think the best part of the holiday season, especially the Christmas season, is the idea of magic and belief. It's the one time of year that kids can tell adults to just put aside what they consider silly things like reason and sense and give in to what kids know to be true. For example, We all know that Santa's reindeer can fly, but some adults might try to explain this away with silly things like science and reason. And the other 11 months of the year, science is the guiding light of this podcast. Christmas is no different. So what are you going to believe? Well, let's look at my favorite tenant, Occam's razor. Now, Occam's razor, it's not a real razor. It can't actually hurt you, unless you consider being wrong painful. Occam's razor is a theory, and it's that the easiest answer is often the correct one. So if a parent walked in and saw a kiddo with chocolate chip residue on their lips, crumbs on their shirt, and they are still chewing, is it more likely that the kid going, I I didn't do it, somebody gulp. I didn't do it. Someone broke into the house and they ate all the cookies on the fridge. And then they rubbed their dirty, gross hands all over my face. And then they got chocolate there. And then they got crumbs all over my sweater. And then this thing I'm chewing, yeah, it's my tongue. Or is it really more likely that that kid ate the cookies and is lying? Occam's razor. The simplest answer, supported by evidence, is often most correct. So hypothetical kid, just own up to eating the cookies and also ask for milk. So which is easier to believe about reindeer who fly? One theory, which I enjoy but holds very little water as you are going to see, is that shaman and holy men of old-timey times would harvest and pick mushrooms. Specifically, Amanita muscaria, or holy mushroom. They would then dry these mushrooms out and deliver them as presents during the solstice, the darkest night of the year, which happens at around the 21st of December. Now, taking a leap that people would walk out into the woods in the dark and the cold to get special mushrooms, take the time to dry them out while freezing and not hunting for food, and then ingest these hallucinogenic mushrooms, meaning these particular mushrooms make you see things that aren't even there, hallucinate, to the point where they are seeing reindeer flying. Yeah, right. Or better yet, the reindeer might have thought that they were flying because they were also eating these mushrooms. This sounds a bit complicated, right? According to Business Insider, if you look at the evidence, you find that shaman didn't travel by sleigh, they didn't deal with reindeer spirits, very rarely they took the mushrooms to get into trances, and they didn't have red and white clothing, said Ronald Hutton, a history professor of the University of Bristol, talking to NPR in 2010. 
So Occam's razor? Shaman taking hallucinogenic shrooms found in the woods in the bitter cold, using precious energy resources before Luna bars were a thing, give illegal drugs as gifts, and as a unit have a massive trip on the night of the solstice and everyone happened to see flying reindeer. Or that kids are right and there are nine reindeer who can fly. According to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, Santa's reindeer subspecies is R.T. Santa Claus Magicalis, and they are the eighth subspecies of caribou and reindeer, as caribou and reindeer are the exact same species. I think, personally, that adults have an amazing capacity to bend facts to suit their own fiction and tend to underestimate kids' perspectives, which are often correct. Let's get down to it. Reindeer are amazing. For starters, reindeer live in areas where they may not have light for months of the year. Or they might even have the opposite problem, light reflecting off of snow for several months of the year, which can lead to snow blindness. See, I read in a book by Blair Braverman, a woman who has run the Iditarod, and she had mentioned in her book, linked below, but I can't say the full title here due to some cursing in the title. So um, I'm going to need to call in an old favorite. Andrew Jackson's bird, can you help me out? Welcome to the <laughs> mice cube. Thanks, Paul. Blair documents in this book that she had the unfortunate experience of having a sunburn up her nostrils from the light reflecting off the glacier she was living on. The sun, even in the bitter cold, can be so dangerous to animals who haven't evolved protection or for people who don't have the right piece of protective equipment. Reindeer do have the right equipment, including in some reindeer, a red nose that Rudolph would be envious of. You see, reindeer have dense arrays of capillaries in their noses to help keep their bodies supported through the harsh winter. And in some of these deer, the capillaries appear pink. So yes, Virginia, there really is a red-nosed reindeer, and it's more common than the traditional Santa stories might lead you to believe. There's a warm flow of blood that warms the air that the reindeer breathe in. So reindeer, not only do they have their noses warm up air before it hits the lungs, their entire bodies, including their hooves, are covered with fur. If they didn't have all these capillaries warming the air, this fantastic real-life animal superpower, even the very nature of breathing in the Arctic air while they're running from prey could give reindeer brain freeze. And that would be such a super bummer, especially since they didn't even get a benefit of a nice double scoop of haagen Now, it's no secret that Rudolph is the latest reindeer to be added to Santa's crew. He was added to the roster in 1939. So the original eight, or ten, and we'll talk about them in a minute, needed a little extra support. But so did Robert L. May, the man who went on to introduce us all to Rudy. See, Robert L. May was really a smart kid who skipped a few grades in school. And as a result, he was always smaller and, yes, weaker than the kids in his class, which made him a target. And according to his daughter, he always saw himself as a nerdy kid and a loser, a misfit, an outcast. And as a kid who was picked on a lot as a kiddo herself and felt the same way, it's not hard to see how Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer came out of a childhood like this. Not in the least. 
Now, when Robert L. May was hired as an adult to write catalogs to send out to Montgomery Ward, Montgomery Ward was a department store in Chicago, where before the internet, people would go and shop in person. Whoa! But these catalogs, they used to sell shirts and soap and the newest gadgets of the day and coloring books to give out to kids during the holidays. It was one of these catalogs where Robert L. May wrote a poem and made illustrations to show off Rudolph, Santa's newest flying teammate. Just after World War II, Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, wrote the song that we all know and love today. And you will hear on Spotify holiday playlist at least 100 times before New Year's Eve. And while Rudolph has the benefit of a nose that is so lit, all the other reindeer also have special eyes to help aid them through the virtually sunless days of the northern environments. Reindeer have the ability to see ultraviolet light, which helps for months of dark, and are also unaffected by snow blindness, which helps for months of sun. Reindeer can easily see a predator's urine in the snow. They can spot other reindeer through storms and even see food below the ice and all without a glowing nose. They have other reflective coating behind their eyes that help bounce more light into their retinas, enhancing their night vision. So now that we know that all reindeer, including those you might see at the zoo or flying overhead, can see in the dark, how on earth did kids around the world learn the name of those eight deer in particular? Well, you know this story, Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Seymour. See, he wrote it in 1823. That was about 200 years ago. To help you recall. "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." That was the poem that introduced us to eight named reindeer. And here is the relevant bit. "'When what to my wandering eyes should appear? But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer, with a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in that moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Dunder and Blixem. You might notice that two of the names you might know aren't quite the same as the ones that I read. Dunder and Blixem, which I had to read twice because I kept reading it as Dunder and Mifflin, and now I want nothing more than Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute from The Office to dress as reindeer. Dunder and Blixem are Dutch for thunder and lightning which over time was recalled in the German Donder and Blitzen, also Thunder and Lightning, and in American English became Donner and Blitzen. Meaning, I don't know. This is basically how American English works in a lot of ways. We tend to take words from other cultures and languages, use them, and like every game of telephone kids play on the schoolyard grounds, the words become muddled and not quite right by the time they get back to the original source. In an attempt to piggyback on the fame of the eight reindeer from Clement Seymour's Night Before Christmas, another guy jumped in, one you likely have heard of, L. Frank Baum, the guy who wrote The Wizard of Oz. He tried to rewrite the history of the reindeer by making his own reindeer names and even added two more, bringing the total to ten. These deer had rhyming pairing names. So you had Flossie and Glossy, Racer and Pacer, Fearless and Peerless, Ready and steady, feckless and speckless. These didn't stick. For starters, peerless means without friends, and that's not ideal. And feckless means irresponsible. So I think going after the OG deer was a swing and a miss from L. Frank Baum. 
We'd rather have names that we don't understand, hey Dunder, hey Mifflin, than names that insult the deer who pulls Santa's beloved sled. Did you notice I said miniature sleigh and tiny reindeer? Twas the night before Christmas, that's how we are introduced to Santa's sleigh. When what to my wandering eyes should appear, a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer, with a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be Saint Nick. Now, I don't know about you, but I generally think of Santa as a jolly fat guy, not a lively and quick man, and I think of the reindeer and sleigh as massive, needing their weight and heft to pull the toys all around the world in a single night. But the image of eight deer the size of chihuahuas and a sleigh the size of a Ford Pinto driven by an athletic Nick from Dick's Sporting Goods does kind of make me smile. And I hope it does you too. Ho, ho, ho! And speaking of size, there is a debate a-brewing about the reindeer gender. In many articles, it said that Santa's sleigh is pulled by eight male reindeer. However, I'm going to drop some mind-blowing knowledge on all y'all. Unlike most deer species, both male and female reindeer grow antlers. And it's that simple fact led by some people to call foul on the flying deer's gender. And for that, I'm ever thankful. You see, lady deer drop their antlers in the summer, while male reindeer keep their antlers for fighting other males during the breeding season, and they drop their antlers later in the year. In the winter. Specifically? Male reindeer drop their antlers in the weeks leading up to Christmas time. So come December 24th, most male reindeer heads are naked, and their bodies are weaker given how much energy they use up to fight off other males, and then use whatever energy stores they have left to mate with the females. And according to some resources, they leave it all in the field. They are so weakened by fighting and by mating that they wouldn't even be able to pull anything except for maybe their pride. I don't even think they would be able to give it up for a high five from another male deer at the pub. So not only would Santa's reindeer have to be female to have those nice racks on their heads, but to be so big and strong enough to pull a sleigh full of toys that they would have to be in peak physical condition, which all signs point to Santa's sleigh being pulled by eight female reindeer. That's the patriarchy for you ladies. You do all the work and eight dudes get all the credit. Typical. However, keep in mind that we are talking about reindeer as scientists have seen and studied. Santa's reindeer? Well, they are likely a breed of reindeer who he have yet to study effectively. For instance, if Santa magic can get the reindeer to fly, I don't see any reason that the deer who pull his sleigh overnight all around the world, through every imaginable weather condition, couldn't be male, retain their velveteen antlers, their muscle mass, their strength. Huh. Occam's razor bites again. Given the fact that they don't ever get lost, I suspect even Santa couldn't breed such a reindeer that the males don't need help with directions. So to quote Beyonce, who run the world? No, literally, who run the world while pulling a sled full of toys for all the good girls and boys? Girls. So until further scientific study confirms otherwise, I am solidly on Team Rain Doe. By the time this airs, you might have already heard the most math-centric song of the Christmas season playing already. Ah, the 12 days of Christmas. 
I think this is one of the most bizarrely referenced song for some interesting conspiracies and theories. See, some say it's a secret codex worthy of the Da Vinci Code to help Christians learn and pass on the tenets of their faith while avoiding persecution. Persecution is a fancy word of uh, treating people unkindly or imprisoning them or doing them intentional harm due to a person's religion or race. At least, this is the theory that a popular meme that goes around every year at this time suggests, and this theory seems to have started about 25 years ago. Interestingly, that's about the same time that the internet really got popular. And like most things circulating the internet, it's shared without any reputable historical reference point. Remember, kids, choose your sources carefully. The idea is that Jesus is representative of the, of the partridge in a pear tree. Catholics weren't exactly so persecuted at the time that this Christmas carol became popular that they would need to hide their song coded in birds and people. Jesus isn't the partridge. The four apostles are not the four calling birds. If Catholic folks were so afraid to come out of the celebration of Christmas that there would be a mass hiding of the religion in song, which actually does happen in many cases, this is not one of them. See the history of Irish music. They wouldn't also be able to celebrate Christmas at the time that this song was written. And that's not historically supported as evidenced by massive celebrations and singing other Christmas carols door to door. So Jesus as a partridge is totes busted. But it did lead me to think about some of the other animals in this song. In this song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, a true love gave his, or her, or their, partner 12 days of presents. Whee! I love, 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 presents. But I'm frugal. How much would all of this cost? Well, the 2019 cost of all the gifts would be around $39,000. And that's about the same cost as a red 2020 Ford Mustang GT, manual transmission because I love stick shift cars, heated leather seats, and a premium sound system. And I personally think that it would be much more practical than a pond of geese. And for the record, Ford Mustangs are not really known for being practical in my region, so that's telling you something. The cost of the gifts have not gone up much in the last year, but neither has the money people have been getting from working. The milkmaids haven't seen a wage increase in over 10 years, assuming that they're paid at the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, they are getting the short end of the stick. Besides, there is something to be said for moderation. If you were really to think of it, those 12 gifts, those $39,000 worth of gifts, which is a good haul, aren't just 12 gifts. Some, like the partridge in a pear tree, were given 12 days in a row. So with the updated math, that comes to over $170,000. That is comparable to a three-bedroom, two-bathroom home in Vargas, North Dakota. And the Mustang and a partridge in a pear tree. This is also the equivalent to renting a windowless 8x8 closet in Boston, Massachusetts for a year in a two-bedroom apartment that you share with six strangers. I wanted to know if the receiver of the gifts were to be able to find space for all those dang birds. We know from previous episodes that birds can get frisky. But how many birds total did the true love get? Well, Let's look at the number of birds that were given. We have 
one partridge and a pear tree for 12 nights in a row. So that's 12. We have two turtle doves for 11 days. We have three French hens for 10 days. Four calling birds, ooh, which historians believe were actually four collie birds. That's the French word meaning black as coal. So four calling birds are likely blackbirds, and you have four a day for nine days. That's 36 blackbirds. Five golden rings. Those aren't birds, but they are. Five golden rings are not likely the rings that you are thinking of. Evidence suggests that the golden rings were actually the rings around the pheasant's neck, or it could even refer to gold sphinx, an old name for a goldfinch, given that every other reference to gifts are ornithologically related. Partridge, turtle doves, blah, blah, blah. Rings around a pheasant's neck, or goldfinches, fit much better than the random gifts from a jeweler. Besides, there's no gift in here that I can see a lot of folks outside of an aviary enthusiast wanting, so why on earth would the lover start on day five, mixing it up with some fancy rings? This lover is leaning in hard to the presents that no one asked for, so I'm going on the assumption that this is just another bleeping bird. So let's go with goldfinches. Sorry, diamond industry. He could have said it with Jared, but instead he got 40 ringed birds of a sort. Six geese a-laying for seven days is 42 geese. Seven swans a-swimming, also 42, because seven times six is the same as six times seven. It's math. So when you add it all up, you have 224 birds alone out of a total of 364 gifts. So if you were given 12 partridges, 12 trees, 22 turtle doves, 30 French hens, 36 blackbirds, 40 pheasants, 42 geese laying eggs in a pond with 42 swans, the swans being the most expensive item at $13,000, and that's without a water feature accessory that is mandatory for these birds. I don't know about you, but I just feel like this is a hoarding situation, or at the very least, overwhelming and probably not welcome. Plus all that bird poop feathers, feeding, care, space so they feel safe. You know, the more I'm looking at this animal gifting portion, I had completely left out the giving a person other people. See, someone gave this poor love 140 humans, which is very upsetting, unless they were paid fairly for their work and labor, which is not part of the song. Who gives someone 40 women milking cattle? And where would you even put the cows? We just found space for the turtle doves in the pantry. Yeah, I'm starting to think that this partner, while the song is often presented as a love story, isn't. I think it actually has more potential for the next American horror story season. Here, my true love, I love you so much I'm giving you a DIY bird hoarding kit. And you get to clean up after it, all of it. Make sure that they get the care they need and food and quality veterinary care. Good luck. The poor love will spend hours every day taking care of just the birds. And that's only if the love isn't arrested for noise complaints or animal neglect if they live in a city. Oh my god, what if they hate Alfred Hitchcock and they're afraid of birds? Drummers drumming, lords are weeping, probably all over that bird poop. Ladies dancing and a third floor walk up? Come on, not even on New Year's. Your neighbors would hate you, and all of this is an absolute no go during COVID 19. Not cool, gift giver. Not cool. 
presents shouldn't be work for the receiver unless they specifically asked for it. Chocolate, that's a present. Stuffed animals, super cool. Puzzles, yay. Legos, yes. Books, 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 yes, please. Giving the gift of anxiety, caretaking, emotional labor, and never-ending financial burden in this economy? And there's the responsibility of sending her all of these people. Let's just take the darkness out of it and assume it was for a performance and they were paid for their time, a comfortable sum, in the time of COVID, no thank you, stay home. I really don't think he liked her that much, and he was trying to send a very clear message. So to recap... The 12 Days of Christmas. It can't possibly be a love song. It's not a secret song about religion, but it was likely a song about memorization, a game to play on long whatever trips people took before cars, and a way that elementary school teachers can get fourth graders to think about exponential economics in a long-form word problem that has nothing to do with a train leaving a station at 50 miles an hour. This song absolutely stands the test of time as a surefire way to drive at least one grandfather in my daughter's life absolutely batty. And it is a perfect cautionary tale about how to find appropriate presents or a partner who can read the room and gift give responsibly. So thank you for joining me for whatever this was today on Bewilder Beasts. <laughs> if there are any topics that you would be interested in hearing about on the podcast, if you know of any historical animals who change the world, animals who help humans, or animals who affect your religion, I would love to hear about them. Please send them in to bewilderbeastspod at gmail.com. Tweet at bewilderedpod. BewilderBeastPod on Facebook and BewilderBeast on Instagram. My name is Melissa McHugh McGrath. I'm a certified professional dog trainer outside of Boston, Massachusetts, the author of Considerations for the City Dog, which is available on Amazon.com, and it makes an excellent present for people who are looking for gift-giving for the dog lover in their life, the co-training director of the oldest AKC Obedience Club in the country, and Mudstuff Media. Now go get curious. I got today's information from OneKindPlanet.org, Snopes.com, because seriously, Ripley's.com, Wikipedia.org, LiveScience.com on reindeer facts, Syracuse.com on the reindeer name origins, NPR.org, BusinessInsider.com, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, MentalFloss.com, TryBeLive.com, Trulia.com for housing prices in rural North Dakota. That is a lot harder to say than I thought it would be. Cars.com for the Mustang and Vox.com. Links, as always, are in the description of today's episode. Intro music is Tiptoe Out the Back by Dan Lebowitz and interstitial music is by MK2. For Christmas this year, all I want is for you to like and subscribe, review, and please share with your curious friends. Have a great holiday season. Thanks for listening. Ho, ho, ho!
You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.